Outsiders is made possible by grants from the Dennis A. Hunt Fund at USC Annenberg Center for Health Journalism, Studio to Be Seattle, and Jim and Beerta Falconer of Seattle. Hey, this is Will James. Making Outsiders has been a learning experience for me and for the Seattle Times Project Homeless team. None of us had ever made a podcast series before, and even though most of us had been reporting on homelessness for a while, reporting on it in this way, it was new, and we ended up seeing this issue and had to report on it in new ways. And so we held a live event in Seattle to explain how and why we made Outsiders and how it changed us. We also realize homelessness is an issue so many people are wrestling with politically and personally, trying to make sense of it. And so we took questions from the audience as well. KNKX Public Radio's news director, Florangela Davila, hosted the event. She starts it off. Welcome to Inside Outsiders, a look inside the making of our Outsiders podcast and a look at what homelessness looks like in Olympia, how Olympia serves as a microcosm for other cities up and down the West Coast that are also grappling with this emergency. Tonight is the result of a unique commitment between an independent local public radio station, KNKX and a family-owned local daily newspaper. We partnered together in order to amplify coverage of one of the most critical issues facing our region. Now let's meet the reporters. Will James with KNKX Public Radio. Biana Davila from Seattle Times Project Homeless. <laughs> Sydney Brownstone with Project Homeless. <laughs> and Scott Greenstone with Project Homeless. <laughs> Will will be our moderator. Thanks, Florangela. Thank you all for, for being here. So one of the paradoxes of homelessness is how, for those of us who are housed, it is part of our lives every day. It's in our thoughts all the time. It's so visible. It's so hard to ignore. And yet there's this distance from it. It's there every time we walk outside. And yet sometimes it can feel like it's happening in this other world that we don't necessarily have access to. And I think that distance is where a lot of this confusion about this issue comes from, because we get all of these inputs of information. We hear things secondhand. We see things from far away. We hear contradictory things. We hear things that are filtered through politics and different narratives that people want to tell. And it's hard to build a picture in your head that incorporates all of this disparate information in a, in a way that makes sense. I think audio journalism has an intimacy that allowed us to take the people listening into the places where we go as reporters and to meet the people that we meet as reporters in encampments, under bridges, in the woods, and more importantly, to elevate their voices so that you could hear from them directly. And I think 
reporting this story and having it unfold over the course of a year allowed people listening to get to know these people and get to know these places and build a picture in their minds that maybe started to put together some of this disparate information that we've all been getting about homelessness for so long. The thing about reporting a story like this for so many months is that it changed the way that we look at this issue. And at least for me, it really transformed the way that I report on this issue and how I relate to this issue just in my personal life. We're gonna share some of those moments with you tonight. And then we'll take some of your questions after that. Over the next few minutes, we are gonna mention uh, suicide. We're gonna mention um, sexual abuse of a child. We're not gonna go into detail on any of these things, but they will come up briefly. And uh, there will also be some cursing. Everyone who's heard the podcast at this point is familiar with Jessica. When reporters embark on a long-term project like this, they often like painstakingly choose their subjects because they're gonna be investing so much time and energy into reporting on them. I did not do that with Jessica. I just met Jessica randomly while I was reporting the news in Olympia one day. And I said something like, it'd be cool to keep up with you and sort of follow you and catch up once in a while. And she was like, uh, okay. And that's how this whole project kind of started. But what I'm about to play for you is one of the moments when one of the core goals of this project started to kind of unravel. With this podcast, I really wanted to be able to explain to you, all the people listening, how individual people become homeless. And so one day, I asked Jessica to tell me the story of how she became homeless, and this is what she told me. I lived over at Courtside. Is Courtside an apartment? Uh, yeah, complex? Courtside Apartments, yeah. And um, it was around Christmas time, and I hadn't seen my family in 15 years. I just moved back. And um, my little nephew was running around, and the downstairs neighbors didn't like it, complained so much that it made me lose my housing because I was being pulled which way. My uncle committed suicide. I was losing my house. My daughter just got kidnapped from school from my, with my uh, ex-husband, and I didn't know which way to go. And I missed an appointment for housing, and they wouldn't let me appeal it, and I've been on the streets ever since. So there's a lot to unpack in those 37 seconds. There's a lot of life in those 37 seconds. When the four of us went out to report episode three of the podcast, I had this idea that with enough work and enough writing and enough editing that we'd be able to succinctly explain to everyone how individual people became homeless. Back when I started reporting on homelessness, a source in government who works on this issue told me that at the root of everyone's homelessness is a crisis, a discrete event like an eviction or a family breakup or a fight with a landlord that cause someone to lose their housing. And if you could resolve that crisis, you could solve the person's homelessness. But as we went out to report, I feel like we kept hearing about three different crises that were unfolding in people's lives all at once. So in every case of homelessness, there is that immediate crisis. And in Jessica's case, as best we can tell, um, she got evicted after missing one or more appointments with the ho local housing authority that was providing her her apartment. But also, as we talked to people, I feel like we kept hearing about this other, this background crisis in people's lives as well. 
in some cases, people could see the forces going on in the backgrounds of their lives, and in some cases, it was harder for them to see because it just was their whole life, and it just was what they were used to. These background crises sometimes are generational poverty. Sometimes it's parents who dealt with addiction. Sometimes it was mental illness that people have been dealing with their whole lives, or it was a criminal record from when they were teenagers that's been following them through their whole lives. And these are the forces that hang in the background of someone's life and make that final catastrophe more likely and more devastating when it finally happens. And I think this idea is illustrated by some of the reporting that Viana did on a particularly challenging case of a guy named Alan. Viana, could you just sort of introduce us to Alan real quick? Sure. Um, hello, everyone. Alan is 71 years old. He's one of the oldest folks in the Olympia homeless mitigation site. He's, he's a real character. He's very confident. He Even at 71, he sees himself as somewhat of a ladies' man. He loves to cook, and he often cooks for other people in the camp. And he is someone who's really worked off and on his entire life. You know, he's experienced homelessness, he said, off and on for maybe about 15 years. But he, you, you wouldn't necessarily know it if you met him on the street. He very much sees these as different individual experiences that he's had through his life. But he doesn't necessarily blame a single one, even though... Ellen had some pretty traumatic experiences happen to him, um, including when he was 65, he was shot in the head. He survived, but that is on top of many other health crises he's had throughout his life. And um, that's kind of led him where he is today. So as Viana talks to Alan, he really presents himself to her as this really like kind of bootstrapping guy. He's, he's very individualistic. He sees himself as in control of his life, and he refuses to kind of see himself as a victim of circumstance or a victim of fate. And in fact, when he tells Viana about how he's gonna get out of homelessness, this is his plan. I decided, well, get my driver's license, and then I'll get these delivery jobs. I went and took the written test, paid for it myself, passed it. And there's my driver's license. Now, then I'm going to get me you know, some kind of vehicle, and I'm come back, and I'm start doing delivery jobs, right? I already got one for DoorDash. So that's his plan. In his 70s, he's going to um, try to drive for delivery app services. So he sees himself as this, like, kind of bootstrapping figure who's in control of his life. But as Viana talks to him, she's able to kind of tease out some of these bigger forces at play in his life. He doesn't have a lot of family left around him who could put him up or help him out. He's had some health problems, as Viana said, throughout his life. Um, Alan is black, and we know that his race makes him much more likely to be homeless for all sorts of systemic reasons. And Viana, you know, as reporters, we are often presented with these two competing narratives of homelessness. There's this micro view of the individual twists and turns of a person's life. And then we also hear about this macro view of all these really powerful forces in the background of someone's life. And so as reporters and as people who are reading and hearing stories about homelessness, how do you think we're supposed to balance those two competing stories? What weight do we put on them? You know, I don't think there's any set weight that you can put on those two things. There's no set formula for how to look at that. I think what you have to do is hold both of those things in your mind as a reader and as a reporter. You know, when you're reporting, a lot of what you do to establish trust with someone is to ask them about the whole of their life, not just 
Tell me about when you became homeless. I think if that was the only conversation we had with people, we wouldn't get very far. So I talked to Alan. I want to know everything about his life from growing up in Iowa and being one of the only kids of color. And you know, you get some of the sense that character comes out. He's like, I was the fastest kid in school. I skipped a couple grades, all those things. And that helps build the person. And then that helps you understand how they got to where they are today. Again, he lost part of his foot when he was a teenager because it got caught in a bicycle chain. When he was 61, he collapsed and found out he had a really weak heart and needed a defibrillator. And then I mentioned he got shot at 65. Then that's when you have to bring in some of the other systemic factors in when you're reporting and writing. Like, for example, age. If any of us got shot in the head at any age, that would be very traumatic. Um, the older you are, the harder it is to recover from those things. He's someone that didn't have a network of people who could necessarily take care of him by that age. And then you're also factoring things like race and, and racism and these things that are forces that have been working really his entire life, whether he knows it or not. And he doesn't necessarily blame it on those things, but you have to consider those issues. Yeah, like we, we all go through bad things in our lives and we all go through crises, but kind of what's going on in the background of your life can make those worse or more devastating right. or more likely. Right. So, so we're hearing about these immediate crises, we're hearing about these bigger forces in people's lives. And, and as we report, I feel like we keep hearing about this third crisis that's going on in, in people's lives as well. And it's the crisis of everything that keeps happening to you after you become homeless. I think this concept is illustrated beautifully in a question about garbage. At one point in our reporting, we asked the public to send us their questions about homelessness. And we posed those questions to people who are homeless to give them a chance to respond. Some of the questions we got were about garbage. It was essentially like, why don't homeless people pick up after themselves? And so as you can imagine, this is kind of an awkward question to bring to people who are homeless, but they were pretty happy to address it. This is a response we got from a guy whose street name is Johnny Irish. All right, well, you got people just like anybody that's going to either, like, be how they were raised. And then there's other people that just, like, they're already dirty, they're filthy, they're not thinking about anything except how wet their socks are that they haven't changed in two weeks, let alone somebody giving them a hot meal that they don't have to stand in line for for an hour and a half to two hours, or having to go someplace where they have to sit around in a hospital scrub in front of like a hundred people while they're washing their drying their clothes so that they don't smell. So I mean, the, the way I see it and the way I can only state it is like throwing a piece of trash on the ground is probably the least of their worries that they're thinking about at that moment when nobody seems to give any care for their needs or their wants or helping them at all. So they feel abandoned. So, you know, they feel like trash. So they feel thrown away, so they just, they don't care. Most people just don't care. He does say also that there are people who are homeless who walk around picking up trash as well, and we often don't think about or talk about those people. But what Johnny's really saying is the experience of homelessness changes people's decision-making and their behavior. He's saying that when you see someone who's homeless behaving in a way that doesn't make sense to you, the reason for that may be that they're homeless. You know, one of the reasons it's so hard to report on poverty or even talk about it is that it's so tied up in ideas about morality. When we see someone behaving a certain way when they're poor or homeless, the default kind of assumption is that they are poor or they are homeless because they are the type of person who behaves that way. And what Johnny Irish is saying is that 
the explanation for their behavior could be the physical and mental and emotional stress of the homelessness and poverty they're going through. And they're not necessarily character traits. That brings me to my next piece of tape. It's from a guy named Jeremy. When I talked to Jeremy, he was living here in an encampment that was called the Smart Lot, and it ex existed in downtown Olympia for several months. This encampment is just about a block away from Olympia's pretty little like downtown shopping district. And when I talk to Jeremy, I get the sense that he is aware of how this looks to me, and he's aware of how this looks to everyone who's walking by. And I feel like he's been waiting almost for an opportunity to explain it. It might look like we're scums on the earth, it might look like we're animals, but at the end of the day, we're family. You know, one eat, we all eat. You know, we all govern ourselves. We're trying to, like, really come together and get to a bigger and better situation. Like, yeah, there's also bad, you know? Here's your fights, here's your stabbings, here's this, here's your ODs, here's that. But the city of Olympia is always talking about the bad, but what about the good? So what Jeremy's saying is that to you, this looks like chaos, but this is how we've figured out how to survive. That was kind of eye-opening for me because homelessness often looks like chaos. It looks like a mess. But hidden in that mess is the fact that people have invented, have improvised without any kind of manual or any kind of guidance, a way to survive in very extreme circumstances. And this is complicated because these methods of survival, they're hard to look at, and they are often even harmful to the people who are trying to survive. But that's not the same as saying they're random, because they're not random. And this applies to a lot of things with homelessness. This applies to drug use some of the time, the way that drugs are tools that people lean on to get them through each day and night outdoors. And that brings me to the next piece of tape I want to play. Tall Sarah, or Sarah, has appeared a couple of times in our series. She was known as Tall Sarah until Scott spent some more time with her and found out she wasn't thrilled about that uh, nickname. And for a while, Sarah lived in this encampment. It, it's an isolated, small encampment in the woods along I-5. And there was a lot of hoarding that went on there. That's been a problem for Sarah. Scott, you spent some time here. Can you sort of just walk us through some of the forces in Sarah's life that are keeping her in this environment? So like you mentioned, drugs are, are definitely one of those things, but it's a little bit more complicated than that. There's, there's things related to drug use. Sarah does have a criminal record that keeps landlords very skeptical of renting to her. One of those is related to drug paraphernalia. One of them is also a violent assault from years ago that still kind of keeps her from, from getting housing. But even just, you know, like Will said, meth, meth is Sarah's drug of choice. And meth is this funny thing where you know, a researcher at the University of Washington, one of the leading drug researchers in the Pacific Northwest, told me that even things like drug use are not totally irrational. And a lot of folks that I've talked to use meth to stay awake outside during the night so that they can protect their camp and protect their things from getting stolen. And often folks even use heroin during the day to sleep when they stayed up all night. And, and so, you know, in that way, drug use can be a tool to help you survive, and then it's also keeping you out on the streets. So this tape I'm about to play, which Scott gathered, is actually some of my favorite tape in this entire series. If you can imagine, right on the other side of those trees is I-5. 
And as Scott's talking to Sarah, it's rush hour and there's this parade of cars taking people home at the end of the day. And you're gonna hear the roar of the highway in the background. And you're gonna hear Scott ask Sarah about the last time uh, she felt at home. When was the last time you really felt at home? Where were you? Um, I don't know, it's been so long. Um, I honestly don't remember. That's okay. That's crazy. I don't know. Sometimes I feel at home out here, but then it just gets crazy again. Now I'm trying to get out, but it's like, where do you even begin, you know? Where do you even begin? So of all the people we talked to in this series, Sarah has one of the longest continuous periods of homelessness. She's been homeless at this point probably about six years. What we're hearing in this moment is Sarah trying to remember what a different life, what we would call a normal life, felt like. And also being kind of baffled by the question, like she hadn't even thought about it in a long time. There are a lot of forces at play in homelessness, and some of them are, are hard to talk about because they're not necessarily quantifiable. But they're some of the forces we wanted to try to capture in this series. As much as homelessness is an economic crisis, it is also often a crisis of isolation and a crisis of alienation from mainstream society. And a crisis of being so immersed in the day-by-day, hour-by-hour task of surviving and feeling okay that you sort of lose sight of the future. It gets kind of vague and far away at a certain point. And I think we're hearing all of that in Sarah's answer and in the long silences as Sarah searches for an answer. And a lot of these things are self-reinforcing too. Like the longer you're homeless, the stronger these forces get in someone's life and the harder it is to get out of it. Well, yeah, I was, I was gonna say that I, for a story that I did in Seattle outside of Olympia, I talked to uh, Rebecca Twig, who was a famous Olympic uh, medalist. She was one of the fastest bicyclists in the world at one point. And when she became homeless in Seattle, life kind of started to slow down. She would ride her bike less and less, and then she got rid of her bike and was walking from place to place. And when I spoke to her for a story that I did last year, she told me that homelessness is like sitting at a bus station and staring at other people who are waiting for the same bus, but the bus just sort of never comes. And um, that has always stuck with me when I've thought about how much time can, can stretch out when you're homeless and, and how often when I ask people to describe when they became homeless, they can't even remember how many years ago it was. Right. I want to return to, to Jessica and, and 13 seconds that created the foundation for this entire series. The streets change you a lot. I'm so cold-hearted right now that I don't even know what nice this is anymore, and that's what I want to find. I want to find my hope and my dignity and my morals. And out here, you can't keep them. Those are the, the opening words of the entire series. These are some of the first words that Jessica spoke to me the day I met her on November 26, 2018. And the reason these are the opening words of the podcast is because this idea, the streets change you, permeate a lot of the reporting we've done. And it, it, it explains so much of our encounters with homelessness and so much of what we've heard tonight. At this moment, when Jessica said that to me, I kind of felt like she was saying, 
the, the person that you see, this is not how I see myself. This is not how I want to see myself. This is a result of what I'm going through. And I felt like she wanted me to know that. Sydney, you spent a lot of time with Jessica. First, I'm wondering if you could just sort of take us through some of the earliest experiences that shaped Jessica's life. Yeah, so Jessica had a pretty extreme set of experiences in her early childhood. Her mom struggled with an addiction to meth and also homelessness. Her dad was an alcoholic. Her parents split up. Her mom got together with her stepdad and her mother and her stepdad trafficked Jessica as a child. Later in her life, Jessica dealt with domestic violence. Her mom died when she was 14 years old. But those early traumatic childhood experiences kind of laid the foundation for Jessica's relationship with the rest of the world. And they severely disadvantaged her from the start. And one of the hard things about hearing Jessica's story is how overwhelming it is. When you hear about the depth of these forces that have shaped her life and how far back they go, it can feel uh, a little bit hopeless at times. So what I wanted to ask you about was, you know, we've done a lot of reporting about how the systems that are designed to help people like Jessica don't seem to be working. She's not able to navigate them. She keeps getting lost in them. She keeps getting expelled out of them. So where do you see hope or promise in efforts to help people like Jessica? One place I see a lot of promise is in relation to veteran homelessness. It's decreased by about half since 2010. And a large part of that is because of the growing cultural recognition of trauma and how it relates to combat veterans. Almost everything we know about trauma is based on the study of combat veterans. And we really only started acknowledging this idea trauma in the late 20th century, even though it had been referenced in some form, irritable heart in the Civil War, you know, going way, way back. But in response to this growing problem of veteran homelessness and veterans with PTSD, the VA developed specific housing programs that would house veterans, but then support them with clinical services. So the trauma at the root of their housing instability would be addressed. If you look at the prevalence of trauma, combat veterans do not have a monopoly on it. In fact, the number of people who have PTSD or complex PTSD from experiences in their youth, sexual trauma, um, domestic violence more, that greatly outnumbers the, num the number of combat veterans with PTSD in the United States. But we don't have programs developed for people, for men and women like Jessica. And I think, you know, there's this growing trend in the human services world of, you know, saying, oh, we're trauma-informed, we're trauma-informed. And I, I think we're, we're slowly pushing it forward, you know, what does that mean to be trauma-informed? But it's a really uncomfortable question because it also forces us as a society to acknowledge the violence within our society, the violence that happens to children, that happens to girls, that happens to women. And I think that we are kind of only scratching the surface of what that is. But I'm greatly encouraged by the progress that's been made with veterans when you, you address the trauma at the root of someone's issues. 
you know, sometimes when you report on homelessness, it can feel like the more reporting you do and the more you learn, the more confused you get because you're constantly getting these new inputs of information that can scramble the picture that you were starting to build in your head of what was going on. And I'm gonna share one of those moments right now. It happened when Scott was interviewing a guy named Joe Martin. Joe Martin, as a young man, was a social worker in a part of Pioneer Square called Skid Road. Skid Road was a place where there were a lot of broken down hotels, people living in like slumlord type housing. And here's how Joe describes Skid Road. You know, every logging camp has a Skid Road. You skid the logs down the road to the mill. It just so happened that the community of drifters, itinerant workers, hobos, prostitutes, gamblers, and kind of the, a whole amalgam of folks who made up that community sprung up in that area of old Seattle. Joe goes on to talk about how, while he was working there in the late 70s and the early 80s, Skid Road started to disappear. He started to watch developers buy up those old buildings where people were scraping by and starting to redevelop them. And that's a process we're all familiar with living in the Puget Sound region today. Joe says many of the people that he watched get displaced from Skid Road became the first wave of our modern day homeless population in Seattle. And as these other places where people used to be able to scrape by disappeared more and more, more waves of people were cast into that population. And this was such a, an eye-opening moment for me because for so long reporting on homelessness, I had been trying to explain why individual people were becoming homeless. And at a certain point, I realized I was kind of just trying to explain why people are poor. And that is a question that is so complicated to the point of almost being ridiculous. Poor people have always existed in this country. But after I heard from Joe, what I started asking was where did poor people used to live? Where did poor people used to live before we had this level of homelessness? And the answer was often places like Skid Road. And so at a certain point in my reporting process, I started to ask people who were homeless, where was the last place you lived inside? And I would ask them to describe it to me. So I would get a sense of where those places were and you know, how they were disappearing. The last piece of tape I'm gonna play is the answer to one of those questions. This piece of tape is probably my favorite clip that didn't appear in the podcast. It's from a woman named Bobby who lived under the 4th Avenue Bridge in Olympia for some time. Bobby uses heroin, and this is a complicated piece of tape. You're gonna hear Bobby start a story, and then about halfway through, it stops making sense, and then suddenly it does make sense again. But I think contained in this tape, Bobby communicates the most about homelessness that I've ever heard anyone communicate in two minutes. And she encompasses pretty much everything we talked about tonight. And I think if you listen closely, you can hear that. One question I've been asking kind of everyone lately is um, to describe the last house they lived in. The last place that you considered your place. My place? Um, my home with my husband. It was a beat down piece of shit trailer. Do you remember any details about it, like 
<laughs> we didn't have steps to get into our place, so we had to build our own steps. <laughs> My husband was always bonking his head, his forehead on the door, you know, the top part of the door. Oh, you mean he was too tall and the door yeah. was too short? And the small closets, the closets were never big enough, ever. I can never fit anything in those damn closets. <laughs> How long ago was that that trailer? April. It was, it's, it's been over a little over a year since. A little over a year, April. I had to come home because his family was. I was scared for my life. Scared of his family. Yeah. His family thought I did it. And it wasn't my fault. It was, he had schizophrenia. And so they just kind of just blamed me for it all. For what? For him killing himself. I'm sorry. Sorry to always ask you about bad memories. Oh, no, it's okay. I like talking about it, and I like crying about it, so. I mean, I grew up a really difficult life, and for me to still still be standing here today even surprises me. I'll be 32 this year. How do you get out of this? I, I don't even know. And with that, we will take some of your questions. Tyler from Seattle is asking, has your study of homeless populations changed your emotional response to homelessness? I, I, I never had much of an emotional connection to anyone who was homeless before. And now, you know, we've known people who were homeless who've died, who've experience some of the worst tragedies in their life. And so, I mean, I will never, ever be able to, to pass a homeless camp again and, and not think who is there, what led them there, what will, what will help them, and will they ever be helped? I started this out by talking about distance and collapsing distance. Reporters don't like talking about emo our emotions, but closeness to an issue changes the way you relate to that issue. When you're seeing something from far away, you have a low resolution picture of it. Some things don't make sense. You fill in the gaps with some of your own conjecture or your own politics. When you're close to an issue, when you're talking with people, when you're getting all this information, all this detailed information you get from personal interaction with someone, you get a high resolution picture. And a lot of the complexity starts coming into view and you get a little bit more comfortable sitting with that complexity. You realize how much you didn't know that you thought you knew before. Yeah, I, I, compared to Scott and Viana, I'm the newest member of Project Homeless. I had covered some tough topics before, but when it came to homelessness, you know, I would walk past someone on the street and I'd make a mental note of it, but as a city dweller, I'm sure a lot of people just go, okay, mental note, that happened, but I'm not gonna really kind of process it right now. And so you develop this kind of cognitive dissonance because in a way like seeing so much homelessness doesn't really make sense it's like I cannot compute at this point in time 
But when I started to cover homelessness, and it was like within the first couple of weeks, suddenly the whole world just opened up and I was really emotionally overwhelmed. You know, you start talking to people and then like Viana said, it's like you don't go by another person on the street without thinking, I wonder what's happening to them. You don't go by another encampment without thinking like, I wonder about everything that's going on inside there. But over time, it's kind of from the emotional overwhelming beginning I think what Will said was really true. You do get comfortable with sitting with complexity. You know, I think that sometimes if you're not dealing with this every single day, it's like easy to fall back on whatever your kind of political ideology is because that's how the world makes sense to you. But when you get into people's lives and the nuances of them, it, there's so much more. There's so much more. And it's actually my favorite part of my job to be able to talk to people and learn more about their lives and their experiences. So it's actually, it's not as overwhelming for me. It's more just about learning and that's really great. Yeah. Were any of the people featured in the podcast invited tonight? And I'm sorry, that's from Jessica from Seattle. That's a very good question. We started thinking about this a while ago and, and the credit goes to our editor, Aaron Hennessy, who really pushed me to try to bring someone with lived experience of homelessness on the stage. And in the ideal version of this event, we would have had at least one person here. Uh, the reality of it is that when, when people are homeless, where they're at one month could be very different from where they're at another month. And so a lot of the people that we had in mind have been going through some stuff and are not in a great position to appear in front of hundreds of people. At a certain point, it made more sense for maybe us to act as intermediaries. That's some of the value we have as reporters, I think, on this issue is that we can kind of act as a go-between when those direct interactions aren't possible because sometimes they're just not. Kelly from Normandy Park asks, after a year of research, do you feel closer to an idea that this will be resolved? Viana and I have, I have talked about whether the idea of solving homelessness is a useful framework yes. at all. Okay, so let's start with that. Um, I don't like the use of the word, and I'm sure I've used it, so I'm guilty of using it, of solving homelessness or ending homelessness. I think that's just a false narrative. One, I think ending implies it will go away forever, and I just don't think that's going to happen. And two, I think solving it is similar to that, but also implies that something is broken or that it's a single thing that is broken, and it's a multitude of things that need to be addressed to reduce homelessness. To This is the largest number of homeless people that have ever existed in Seattle, for example, and on the West Coast. So... We're talking about large forces that are not just contained to here. They're across the country. You know, I, if we're talking about sort of an idea of how to maybe begin to address it, I think what Sydney was talking about earlier, which is looking at trauma-informed care, but true trauma-informed care, and really untangling the different strings that lead to different people becoming homeless, and that involves looking at systems. I mean, I, I don't have a clear yes or no, but I do think the more that we talk about these things in the manner that you see in the podcast or in Project Homeless, the closer we will get to understanding these issues. You know, I think this is a fixture of American life, to be honest. I, I, I think it's a long way to go, 
because we have so much income inequality in this country. Seattle may be the most extreme version, but it's not the only. But I also think that if we continue things like this and talking about it, we can get closer to an answer. I know that's not the most positive answer, but I think it's a real one. This is a question from Paul from Seattle. Is there a portion of homelessness that is by choice? People who prefer to avoid shelters or people who choose to stay on the streets? In, in my reporting in Olympia, I have met a handful of people, a small minority of people, who have told me this is a choice. When I hear that, what I wonder is a choice given what alternatives? And when you start to look into a person's life story and you hear that they have been in 47 different foster homes from the time they were 10 years old and they you know, didn't complete high school and all these other things, you start to realize like a lot of the other choices weren't that great. Sometimes, like, I think we've all, at some point in our lives, had something happen to us, or like, maybe you kind of play it off like it was your plan or it was your choice, but it's just kind of a way to reclaim the power over the situation when really it wasn't your plan all along, and sometimes that happens too, I think. Sometimes I wonder if we focus on those stories so much because they kind of give us an out if we can make an argument that this is a choice or a lifestyle, it kind of exempts us from any responsibility to engage with it or deal with it. I think in that question, I'm also hearing something else, like the idea that homelessness is not rational behavior, right? Like you see someone living in a tent on the street in a Seattle winter, like you think that's, that's irrational, right? So, you know, the, the question is also about like, what is this irrational behavior? But I think the, the thing that I have grown to believe, or I don't know, yeah, I believe it. What if you start from the place of assuming everyone is a rational actor? And I think Jessica's story is a really good example, right? She had this horrific childhood, and her childhood shaped the way she viewed the world and other people, and what that taught her was that she couldn't trust people. So if you grow up thinking that you can't trust people who are supposed to take care of you, let's say you move through the homelessness services system, sometimes it can be really difficult to differentiate between uh, a tangible offer of help versus someone who's out to harm you. You might gravitate towards the harm or, and reject the help. And that might be a perfectly rational choice given your experiences and the information that you have. So you know, instead of kind of splitting people into rational or irrational, start from the place of, okay, what if everyone is making a rational decision? Why are they, what's the information that they have and what's shaping their perspective? Kari from Gig Harbor. Do you think the money spent on solutions, mitigation sites, street outreach, tiny homes, is making a difference in the lives of people experiencing homelessness, or should those dollars be spent on prevention services? We, we hear about these divides all the time in the solution to homelessness. Like, one of the big ones is between people who are really focused on the long-term response to homelessness, like building a whole bunch more housing and vastly expanding mental health care 
things that will take years and years and years to come online. And then you have another group of people who say like, yes, that needs to be done, but we also have this immediate emergency and we need things like street outreach and we need sanctioned camps and we need to triage this. And so sometimes people are sort of competing for limited resources between the long-term and short-term responses. A lot of people would also argue that's not necessarily an either or. I, th I think you need all of it, which is, you know, hard, financially, that's a hard thing to, to think about. But I think what is important is to look at whatever program, whether you're looking at prevention or something like housing or tiny house villages, is to look at how well are these programs working is not necessarily as a concept, but are individual providers, you know, what are their outcomes? And by the way, I think outcomes can be looked at a variety of different ways. The city focuses a lot on exits out of homelessness, um, but you know, sometimes that's a very black and white way of looking at it. For some people, their numbers might be best you know, looked at. Who, who of our clients got IDs? Because that is incredibly hard to do. So I think you need to have different metrics, but if something isn't working, that's when you start evaluating, but not necessarily saying, well, we're just gonna throw all of these things away and we're only gonna look at prevention and we're only gonna look at downstream. One thing I would also add is that, you know, as Viana said, there's a lot of focus on looking at uh, certain outcomes and metrics, you know, when you're looking at which homelessness programs are working or not working. But I think homelessness is oftentimes the last stop on a train of system failure. And in order to reform the systems that got us into that place would, would require like a huge <laughs> infusion of money on a kind of societal level. So just throwing that out there. Why did you choose Olympia is the first question. And then have you given this presentation to the Olympia government and police? If not, do you plan to? If not, why not? In terms of why we chose Olympia, I, I've been saying this whole time that we could have set this podcast in many other cities. This is not a story about Olympia. Olympia is a microcosm for things that are happening in Seattle, in Portland, in Tacoma, in Puyallup, in large cities, in small cities. There's nothing unusual about what's happening in Olympia, fundamentally. We chose Olympia because number one, Olympia was going through a moment in late 2018, early 2019, when there was a lot of action on homelessness. The city had this large spike in the number of unsheltered people living downtown. The city was reckoning with this. They were figuring out what to do. There was a lot going on, and it was a good place to start a story. Because I feel like sometimes the focus on homelessness ebbs and flows. And in, in a city like Seattle, there are moments where it flares up and everyone's talking about it and there's a lot of dynamism. And then it kind of slows down and the, the opinions kind of harden and everyone gets stuck for a while. And then it, Olympia was at a moment where a lot was happening. There were also practical reasons. Like when you report on homelessness, a lot of the people we talk to, they don't have phones or they have sporadic access to phones and internet. We met with them by wandering around downtown and trying to find them. Jessica is an especially elusive person. Sydney and I have spent unknown amounts of time just walking around downtown Olympia looking for her and sometimes not finding her. I think in a city as big as Seattle, she would be lost and we would never have found her again. Emily from San Francisco. Was there any concern when starting this podcast that you may be perpetuating stereotypes of what homelessness looks like? 
If so, what were the strategies for combating that? Yeah, I was really skeptical about this podcast. I kind of came on late in the process because I had just started my job and, you know, then my team was like, oh, hey, we're doing a podcast. And I was like, okay. And I, the reason I was also skeptical is because, you know, what was bringing me in, we, we want you to talk to this woman and get at, you know, some things that she hasn't told me. And I was really nervous that I would kind of be used as like a trauma whisperer. And that really rubbed me the wrong way. But after talking to Will and getting to know Will, I realized that was not the point at all. We're really trying to understand people's pathways into homelessness. So I think that, you know, some of the strategies that we have used is just talking constantly about that very thing. Are we sensationalizing this? Like, what are the ethical considerations of doing that? And just, it takes how long to get to Olympia, Will? Um, about an hour and 10 minutes. About an hour and 10 minutes, so two, hour, two hours and 20 minutes. Like, every time we've gone down to Olympia, we've spent two hours and 20 minutes basically talking about those very things. So, long conversations. I think the strategy was just kind of getting out of the way as best we could and just showing people what's happening, not trying to twist a narrative in any particular direction. Just use the intimacy of audio being able to hear people's voices, to let you get close to some of these people to an extent, and also to always be explaining. There are lots of points in this podcast where we hear something and then Sydney and I talk about it, or Scott and I talk about it, and we try to explain the background or why this person is doing this. And asking people themselves, all right, I see you doing this, I see you in the situation, why is this happening? What's going on? And allow them to explain it themselves. This one is from Yasmin from Springfield, Massachusetts. Can you say more about some of the ways that systemic and cultural anti-blackness exacerbate people of color's risk of homelessness other than that they do simply impact their risk? Yeah, Viana has done some reporting on this. Yeah. So if you will, I mean, statistically, at least in King County and Seattle, um, African Americans and Native people are far more likely to be overrepresented in the homeless population. In other words, their their percent in the homeless population is much higher proportionally to their percent in just the overall population. And this kind of repeats itself across the country, particularly for African Americans. And so there's this concept called network impoverishment which basically is often people of color may come from networks that don't necessarily have, they don't have the safety nets. So it takes very little for them to slip into homelessness. It maybe takes one crisis versus many. They may have loving family and friends who want to help them, but they just may not be able to. They don't have the financial resources. And that's because of decades of racist policies, redlining, things of that sort that sort of culminate in these situations. We know at this point all about redlining and how policies, government policies and business policies prevented black families from building up wealth through home ownership and other things. When we look at the statistics and we see that that black people are 12% of our nation's population, but 40% of the homeless population. What we're seeing is how those policies have trickled through the decades and are affecting people's lives today. This is a question for you, Sydney. Why is sexual violence so prevalent amongst 
homeless people. So there's been some research around something called adverse childhood experiences, also known as ACEs. And an adverse childhood experience can be neglect, it can be childhood sexual abuse, it can be domestic violence, it can be poverty, it can be a lot of different things. Research shows that among homeless populations, there tend to be higher numbers of adverse childhood experiences. But I, I think the, the other thing, too, is that sexual violence in the general population is also extremely high, and we, we just don't know about it. There are a lot of very high-functioning sexual assault survivors walking around right now. They just might not be homeless. So I don't want to say that like sexual assault is only an experience among people who are homeless, but I just do think it's an under-recognized issue more generally that we haven't fully dealt with. Azaria from Tacoma. How do you make people comfortable enough to share their experiences for a podcast? And are there any support or resources provided to those who are featured in the podcast? It's really tricky because as reporters, there's kind of an ethical rule that we do not accept gifts and we do not give gifts to people who we're working with, who we're interviewing. The reason for that is because it creates power dynamics between people. If you give something to someone, there's maybe an implication that they owe you and thus you have power over them. If someone gives something to you, there's an implication that maybe you owe them and you want to reciprocate. And so like the general rule in journalism is you do not do that. Now this gets really complicated with reporting on homelessness because you're talking to people who really need basic stuff in a lot of cases. They need blankets, they need shoes, they really want like gloves and hand warmers. And this is where it gets tricky. Throughout this podcast, you know, I will admit there were times when someone had mentioned being hungry and Scott and I had extra food from lunch that we gave people. There was a time when Talsara said it was her birthday and all she wanted was something uh, sweet because she hadn't eaten any like kind of dessert in a really long time. And so the next time we saw Talsara, we brought her like a pastry or something. There was also like this idea that the same courtesies that we'd give a source who's housed, buying them a cup of coffee once in a while, buying them lunch once in a while, why not extend those same courtesies to people who are homeless, right? Or why, why not do that? So what I would say is like, we at times did, did help people out in very small ways, trying to be very conscious of the power dynamics. We never wanted someone to feel like they owed us or they had to participate because we gave them something. And to address the first part of the question about uh, making people comfortable. I gotta say, I don't have a problem usually with getting people to open up. They're usually very open and they, they just wanna talk a lot of the time and they just wanna share their stories. So I think making people comfortable is not, not actually that hard. Yeah, and Sydney, you, you went into a particularly tough conversation with, with Jessica. Is there anything you did to, to kind of ease that? Yeah, I took this one right out of therapy. The way I think about like, talking to people about trauma is you don't want to leave them in that place that can be really kind of triggering, for lack of a better word. So what I did with Jessica is I was checking in with her a lot about how she felt and asked her to like locate it and describe what she was feeling. 
my therapist calls this checking in with your inner resources. So, you know, if I ask her in one moment and she says, oh, I've got this really tight knot in my chest and this is how I'm feeling and we continue to talk, I check in with her again and she, I ask her how she's feeling, you know, oh, that knot in my chest has gone away, I'm feeling better. It's getting her to recognize in a, in a way, just like on a physical level, that she's resilient, you know? Um, and so I felt more comfortable leaving disengaging from the conversation at that point rather than, you know, just talking to someone about some really horrible things and being like, whoop, bye, you know. There was a question at the event we left out of this recording because we're going to spend the whole next episode on it. Where are unsheltered people coming from? And is something drawing them to Olympia? That's next on Outsiders. for coming. Your support here is a support for local journalism and a collaboration like this. Thank you, Scott, Sydney, Viana, Will, Seattle Times, Project Homeless, K&KX. Have a good night. <laughs> 